We just had a good demonstration of what we do with our bodies that reflects what we feel, the realities of our lives. We clap. And this morning, if you're new here, I want you to understand that we try to demonstrate before God our submission to him and our place before him as his creatures. And we do this in part because he is our king, our God, and our maker. And so when we come to the pastoral prayer, those of us who can kneel to show our submission and reverence toward God. So if you can now, join me in kneeling if you're able. Father in heaven, this morning we come to you as a people recognizing and confessing who you are. You have made us, we have not made ourselves. It is to you and to your holiness and to your law and to your character that we are accountable. We're not accountable to one another. And it is to you that we will give reckoning. And it is before your son, the great king, of which we just sang, that we will stand and he will judge us. And so, Father, we come before you, kneeling before you, and Lord, according to and through the the work of your mercy and your grace in our hearts, our hearts also are kneeling before you. Our attitudes, our wills bowed before you, God, because you are worthy. You are the one who should receive our worship and our praise. And Lord, as a particular congregation of people, we adore you. We thank you. We love you. We give you praise and honor. And Father, this morning we've confessed sin to you. And it's not hypothetical. It is real. We have truly offended you. We have truly disobeyed you. Father, we have asked for your mercy and forgiveness. And you are kind and have given forgiveness. And you do forgive us our transgressions and we thank you. Would you make us to hate and abhor our sin and to be truly sorrowful for it? And as we walk through this world, would you sanctify us and cleanse us from it in your kindness? Father, thank you. This morning, Father, as a church, we represent so many people and so many needs and petitions. Lord, concerns of life, fears, needs, Father, sicknesses, spiritual needs, just abundant, abundant numbers of needs in our lives. And as we come before you, Father, we petition you, we ask you, you are capable not only of managing all of those needs which we present to you, but Father, you have testified in your word that you know our needs even before we're even aware of them. And this is true. And so, Father, we petition you, we ask you, would you please heal us, heal our bodies? Would you please, Father, make us well in spirit? Would you heal us spiritually? Would you heal our family members? Would you call our children and our parents and our friends and our co-workers to repentance? Would you call them to life, Father? Would you call us to repentance and faith? Father, this morning we have other needs in our lives, physical needs, that you said that you would provide for us, and you do, and you have. And yet we come to you according to your will, 
and ask you again, will you provide for our needs as we give thanks to you for your provision to our church and to each of us individually. Father, we petition you and ask you that you will care for us, that you will give us clothing, that you will give us housing, that you will give us food, and mostly, Lord, that you will protect us in Christ and that you will keep a watchful hand over us. And Father, as the church has the activities scheduled for the week ahead and for the month ahead, we petition you and ask you that you will be glorified in the work that's done. Father, that your, your uh, character will be displayed before the world, that your truth will be displayed in our lives. And Lord, that you will be glorified and that men will confess you and that they will call upon your name. Lord, we trust you and we love you and we, we adore you, we praise you. Now, Lord, as we come to you to hear your word as it's spoken to us, as it's declared, would you change our hearts? Would you anoint him as he preaches? Would you make us vessels that hear with our ears spiritually? Would our hearts be open to what is said by your Holy Spirit and would we be changed, Father, according to your will? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. He is risen. I welcome all of you who don't normally worship with us to this service. This is, I would say, the second most joyful day of the year. I always get a, uh, I always am somewhat, um, it always impresses me how there Few people come to worship on Good Friday, which I believe is the most joyful day of the life of a Christian, because on Good Friday, we celebrate the pouring out of the blood of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sinners like you and me. And you go through the year, and you see the battle that it is to live as a Christian, to live, to be a follower of Christ, and you come to the day when we celebrate the death of our magnificent lamb on the cross. And then when we get to Easter, we have the day that we celebrate his father vindicating him and giving him a name that's above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue confess that he is Lord. But I would encourage all of you to come on Good Friday next year. Um, good because it is the day that the Lamb shed his blood so that you and I might escape the fires of hell. Now I want to start by speaking about, uh, I, I'm not going to go to the text yet. I want to start by uh, setting this, the scene for us this morning. We're here in Bloomington, and Bloomington is known in Indiana as the home of Indiana University, and that's very much a reality for us as a congregation. You heard Lucas hesitantly saying he was looking forward to this next weekend, and the reason he's hesitant is that we have become used to hiding as Christians and acting as if we're like everybody else and that there's nothing scandalous about us. So I want to take us back to another university community. And this one is Athens, 2,000 years ago. And 
they were just as sophisticated, maybe, as Indiana University and Bloomington are. Um, that's a joke. Athens, of course, is the great university community across all history. Every scholar wishes that he had been there in Athens. And the Apostle Paul, who was an ignorant Christian, came to Athens and he began to go anywhere he could engage people in argument, and he began to argue with them. He did it in the synagogue with both the Jews and the God-fearing Gentiles, because those who feared God uh, would go into the synagogue to find out about God. But it says he also did it in the marketplace. So he was down on Kirkwood or over in front of Walmart, actually, I think more likely. And he was arguing with anybody he could argue with about sin and judgment and heaven and hell and Jesus Christ. And I want to read to you just a little bit of an excerpt of what we're, we find out about that scene in Acts chapter 17. It's recorded for us there that while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was being provoked within him as he was observing the city full of idols. And that's how we as Christians should live in this community, with spirits provoked within us at the idolatry that surrounds us. And so he was reasoning, and that word reasoning, you know, reasoning, well, that's, that's what philosophers do. Well, no, he was arguing, debating, reasoning, in the synagogue with the Jews and the God-fearing Gentiles, and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be present, and also some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers were conversing with him. Now, we read on that the philosophers said, you know, this guy is very interesting. Let's invite him to come to the highest expression of our community life, which was the Areopagus. The Areopagus was both the name for a location and the name for a group of men. They were the leaders. The location was where those leaders would meet publicly. So they invited Paul to come there and to speak. And I'm not going to read the whole uh, summary that we have in Acts 17, but I want to go to the end, because when he gets to the end, this is what he says. He says, being then the children of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and thought of man. Now think about this, he's in Athens, the seat of philosophy, of drama, and of art. And he says, it's not the art of man that worships and that glorifies God. And he says, all of us are the children of God. And then he says, we ought not to think, all right, that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art or thought of man. In other words, the artists aren't leading us to God, and the philosophers aren't leading us to God. All right? And then he says this, Athens, he says, therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance. Now, you just imagine being in Athens among the leading men and saying, it's not your art and it's not your philosophy. It won't lead you to God. Therefore, God, having overlooked the times of ignorance. And so he's told you, your art isn't going to get you there. Your philosophy isn't going to get you there. And you're ignorant. Okay? You're ignorant. Now, this is truth. This is truth. Athens, 
in its art, in its philosophy, was a time of ignorance. And you see, there's no compromise between the people of God and the academy. The Apostle Paul didn't go in there wheedling and cajoling them, trying to prove that he was just as smart as they were. What he did was he opened up their hearts, and this is what he said. Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent. The Apostle Paul has no question about the nature of the human heart. He has no question about their consciences. He doesn't go into a long elaboration about what they should repent of. He knows that every single one of them carry this burning awareness every second of every day of what they need to repent of. And then he says God is demanding that all people everywhere should repent. And then he gives them motivation. God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. Not your art, not your philosophy. That's a time of ignorance. Now he is demanding that you repent because he has fixed a day when you will be judged, when all men will be judged. And he has witnessed to the fact that all men will be judged by raising a man from the dead. And of course that man is Jesus Christ, his son. He has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. Now listen to how Athens responded. All right. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some began to sneer. Now listen, all Bloomington is sneering at Doug Wilson coming. And Bloomington has sneered at us for a long time. And that's our privilege. Because they sneered at Jesus. When Jesus was on the cross, they said, he says that he believes in God, let him deliver him. If he trusts in God, let him deliver him. The man is in, is in torment on the cross. And this is what they throw in his face. If he trusts in God, let him deliver him. You, know, you have these scenes in movies of the family and the victim's parents witnessing the execution of a murderer. And you've got the plate glass window and the gurney, and then you have the witnesses, a few journalists, a pastor, try to comprehend the people on the other side of the glass. You know, let God deliver him! And yet that was a scene in front of Jesus. There was no question of the utter uh, degradation of the Son of God reduced in his final moments to people mocking him and scorning him. And so when Paul, in Athens, among all the uber-sophisticates, 
proclaims this same Jesus Christ, it says that some began to sneer. Now listen. This is you and this is me. Ever since the fall, you and I, and every man that's ever been born, has within himself a a desperate principle, a law of sin and death. And so when the Apostle Paul's preaching to them, he doesn't stop to enumerate their sins. Now, you told a little white lie yesterday, didn't you? I know you did. No, he says he has commanded all people everywhere to repent. And he knows that he doesn't have to come up with all the things they need to repent of. He knows that God has put a witness in their heart of their wickedness, of their depravity, of the principle, the law of sin and death that resides in them. Men and women, children, we know because God has put that witness in our hearts that we are desperately wicked and that God will one day judge us. And we either spend our lives denying it or we spend our lives repenting of it and trusting in the blood of Jesus Christ. That is the Christian gospel. That's it. And on Easter, we celebrate the day when Jesus Christ was raised by God from the grave. And a little while later, he ascended to heaven, and he left his witness here on earth. And the witness is the church. And the church preaches. Everywhere it goes, it preaches. It goes into, uh, into Athens, and it preaches. It goes into Ballantyne. And it preaches. Sometimes it's privileged to get the lectern. Sometimes even tenure. But it preaches. It preaches at Crane. It preaches in Africa. It preaches to your wife. Everywhere it goes, it preaches. And what it preaches is that he has fixed a time when we will be judged. And those who belong to Jesus, who have trusted in him for the forgiveness of their sins, will be raised to eternal life and will dwell with him forever. And those who shake their fist at him and will not humble themselves, he will judge. And the world sneers. Delicately, delicately it sneers at the resurrection of the dead. Viciously it sneers at the judgment of God. But the world sneers. This last year there was a death of a notorious God-hater. And his name was Christopher Hitchens. If Christopher Hitchens had said everything he said privately in like the cigar room of the Burl and the Briar or whatever it's called, you know, you might think it was the rannings of a drunk man. And you might cover it over in modesty. But there was never anything modest about Christopher Hitchens. Christopher Hitchens made his shame a principle that the whole world saw. He tried to get it published everywhere he could. When he died, his brother wrote a short eulogy, sort of, 
that ran in a British paper. And it, it, it was a very, very sad piece that walked a very fine line because his brother is a Christian, an orthodox, godly Christian. And, of course, there had been a running battle between them. Sometimes it was a battle over who said what. Sometimes, though, what was clear came into the open, which was that it was a battle between a man of God and a man of wickedness. And so he wrote this obituary eulogy, and what he said in the eulogy is that his brother had a trait that C.S. Lewis said is the highest of all the virtues, that he had courage. And it does take courage to shake your fist in the face of God. But it is the courage of a fool. Because scripture says the fool has said in his heart, there is no God. It's been a matter of great uh, uh, disappointment to me to see how many Christians, including Francis Collins, have held out some hope of Christopher Hitchens being in heaven of him being welcomed into the presence of God. I want to read to you a few things that Christopher Hitchens said, because I just don't think we get it that that Athens sneered. I don't think we understand how many of those that are all around us, how many even in our own homes, sneer at God and shake their fist at God. And I think until we take seriously the judgment of God, Easter is meaningless to us. And so let me read to you a little bit of of Christopher Hitchens. And let me say to you, those of you that may be offended because I'm holding him up to condemnation, let me tell you, I once said about an elder of a former church of mine that if I were in a room alone where no one would hear anything he said, He's one of the men that I would probably find most enjoyable to talk to. Because there is a certain interest about skeptics and unbelievers that that if you don't have to have anybody hear it other than yourself, it keeps you awake. I like the fact that Christopher Hitchens says that Johnny Walker Black is the best blend of scotch whiskey. I'm sorry, but there are many things to like about Christopher Hitchens. But we must fear God. We must. Now here is what, this is out of the Portland Monthly, and it's just a few months before Chris died. He died of cancer of the esophagus. I lost a brother to cancer of the esophagus a few years ago. He was interviewed by a woman, Marilyn Sewell, who had recently retired as the head pastor of the first Unitarian Church in Portland. She had grown it into one of the largest churches in the Unitarian denomination. And Hitchens is talking to her. I'm picking up mid-interview, and he says to her, I think I may belong to what is, now listen to this, I think I may belong to what is a significant minority of human beings, I think I may belong to what is a significant minority of human beings 
Those who are, as Pascal puts it in his pensées, his great apology for Christianity, quote, so made that they cannot believe. Think about this. This is Christopher Hitchens. And he says, I think I may belong to that category of individuals that Pascal speaks of in his book, The Pensées, those who are made so that they cannot believe. Well, to that, the Unitarian minister, Ms. Sewell, says, quote, I'm a liberal Christian, and I don't take the stories from the scripture literally. I don't believe in the doctrine of atonement, that Jesus died for our sins, for example. Now, mind you, you heard what he just said. I think I've been made someone who can't believe. I think you almost hear the word God there. I think God made me a man who can't believe. And she says, I'm a liberal Christian. And I don't take the stories from the scripture literally. I don't believe in the doctrine of atonement, that Jesus died for our sins, for example. Do you make any distinction between fundamentalist faith and liberal religion? And Hitchens says this. He says, I would say that if you don't believe that Jesus of Nazareth was the Christ and Messiah and that he rose again from the dead, and by his sacrifice our sins are forgiven, you're really not in any meaningful sense a Christian. (laughs) I told you. He's likable. Well, to that she responds, let me go someplace else. (laughs) When I was in seminary, (laughs) I was particularly drawn to the work of theologian Paul Tillich. For Tillich, God is, quote, the ground of being, unquote. What do you think of Tillich's concept of God? (laughs) That's, by the way, the way I signal that somebody is trying to be self-important, all right? And here's how Hitchens responds. He says, I would classify that under the heading of statements that have no meaning at all. Now listen, listen to Christopher Hitchens. Listen to this. He says, St. Paul says, and he uses the word saint. St. Paul says very clearly that if it is not true that Jesus Christ rose from the dead, then we the Christians are of all people the most unhappy. If none of that's true and you seem to say it isn't, I have no quarrel with you. You're not going to come to my door trying to convince me. If all Christians were like you, I wouldn't have had to write the book. A short time after this interview, we read this. 
that he was scheduled to appear at the American Atheist Convention. He had to cancel because of his cancer. And so he sent a letter instead. Let me read an excerpt from the letter. He says, Dear fellow unbelievers, nothing would have kept me from joining you except the loss of my voice, at least my speaking voice, which in turn is due to a long argument I am currently having with the specter of death. Nobody ever wins this argument. Though there are some solid points to be made while the discussion goes on. I have found, as the enemy becomes more familiar, that all the special pleading for salvation, redemption, and supernatural deliverance appears even more hollow and artificial to me than it did before. And then this, shortly before his death, this was, well, actually, a little over a year before his death from an interview that ran in the Atlantic. He discussed the possibility of a deathbed conversion, insisting that the odds were slim that he would admit to the existence of God. And then he says this, quote, the entity, in other words, if anybody were to say that he had converted at the end, he says, the entity making such a remark might be a raving, terrified person whose cancer has spread to the brain. Quote, I can't guarantee that such an entity wouldn't make such a ridiculous remark, but no one recognizable as myself would ever make such a remark, unquote. In other words, what he's saying is, if it gets to the end, cancer gets to my brain, I might say that I have repented and that I have faith in Jesus Christ. But none of you will ever recognize that man because you know who I really am. Now listen, that man who said those things is in hell. You understand this. Likeable, in some ways very honest, but if you read what he says across his lifetime, particularly in his attack on Mother Teresa, which the very title of it is profane and obscene. At the center of his hatred is the authority of God the Father. If you read him, that's the very center of what he hates is the Father authority of God. And now I ask you, how how different is that really from the world that we live in? Here at Clearnote Church, we constantly speak about how we hate authority. We hate authority in marriage. We hate authority in the home with children. We hate speed limits. We hate taxes. We hate the king. We hate the Supreme Court. We hate the president. We hate anybody that tells us no. And so Christopher Hitchens really does speak for the world today. He really does speak for the United States of America. There was a reason that he was fated everywhere he went. He really does speak for Indiana, innocent as it appears to be. And he really does speak for Bloomington. And he really does speak for you. 
Because the world does not believe in judgment. And the world doesn't believe in hell. And if you want to know whether or not the world believes in hell, go into any church, sit for a year under the preaching, supposedly, of the Word of God, you'll never hear of it. Unless you go to an ancient creed, and of course ancient is a pejorative in our world today, and there in the creed there's like this gnarly thing you know, it, it, it all of a sudden shocks us. It comes up. And it's the judgment. And it's heaven and hell. And so here Christopher Hitchens is, and he's very honest. And he dies, and his brother, who's a godly Christian, is left trying to know what to say. It's interesting, right before he dies, Hitchens, or Hitch, as they would call him, he, he, he talked about uh, how he, he was going into the darkness, surrounded by his close friends and family that he loved, okay? And he says, basically, he says, all of whom are opposed to religion. And so he has one brother, his closest living relative, a godly man, Peter Hitchens, And as he goes to his grave, he says that the people that he loves, who are close to him as he dies, are all united in opposing God. Now, it is true that just a few days before his death, Peter did go down to the MD Anderson Center in Houston where Christopher finished his life and met God. And they did have a warm time together, and Peter speaks of this. Um, but it's, it's so very sad. You look at the cross of Christ, and you see two thieves on either side. And you see them mocking him. And then one of them turns to Jesus and says, Lord, remember me when you enter paradise. And Jesus immediately responds to him, remember me when you enter your kingdom, I'm sorry. And Jesus immediately responds to him and says, this day you shall be with me in paradise. But, but nobody ever says anything about the other thief. What happened to the other thief? This is no question about it. He went to the judgment seat of God and was cast into hell. Where Jesus himself testifies, the worm never dies and the fire is never quenched. It would be monstrous for us knowing these truths about what is coming to every man and woman to not speak of them. And if we think that we can speak about heaven and Easter without holding out the cross, holding out Good Friday, and holding out the judgment and holding out hell, we're probably the kind of parent that raises children by positive reinforcement. <laughs> and does it work? Well, yes. In some ways. But if your child is running out into the street and a Mack truck is coming, what would you do if you had a choice? You, on the one hand, you have no, and on the other hand, you have positive reinforcement. I think all of us at that moment would say, no! 
Stop! And yet today in our sophisticated environment, there's no man among us who will say stop. There's no man among us who will say no. The Apostle Paul went into Athens and he stood up and he said, No! Stop! Ignorance! Repent! Judgment! And Mike Leonard at the Herald Times wrote it up. Made fun of it, but recorded it. And the IDS had some comments also. And they sneered. But you know something? Not until people sneer do you have those who believe. Because not until they sneer do they have the real gospel. Because the gospel is always God's no as well as his yes. It's always his hell as well as his heaven. It's always sin and judgment as well as faith and mercy. Now, I've read a little bit of scripture, but I haven't read our text yet. And here's our text. Listen to this. Because I thought Christopher Hitchens was the perfect lead-in to the, to the Sadducees. All right? And so here we have the Sadducees who were, let me, let me just set the scene a little bit. The Sadducees were the sophisticated religious leaders. You had the Pharisees, and the Pharisees and the Sadducees were both close students of, of, of the law, which is the Old Testament. And the Pharisees were very, very conservative. Um, John MacArthur, uh, Charles Stanley, Jerry Falwell, Al Mohler, John Piper, Stephen Baker, they were the Pharisees. Tim Bailey, they were the Pharisees. But alongside the Pharisees were sophisticated and wealthier and skeptical Pharisees named Sadducees. All right? And the Sadducees were known for their rejection of the immortality of the soul. They didn't believe that the soul was immortal. For the resurrection of the body, they didn't believe that the body would be resurrected by God. They didn't believe in any rewards or punishments after death. They did not believe in angels or demons. And they did not believe that God was sovereign and controlled the world and our lives. All right? So they were religious. They were like this Unitarian minister from Portland. All right? They were intent upon proving how sophisticated they were to all the intellectuals of their time. Interestingly, if you study the history of the Pharisees and Sadducees, women were the followers of the Pharisees, who were Orthodox. And the rich and the rulers were the followers of the Sadducees. All right? Now, here's, here's the text. This is a scene between Jesus and the Sadducees. On that day, some Sadducees, and then it adds a parenthetical aside, who say there is no resurrection, end of parentheses, came to Jesus and questioned him, asking, Teacher, Moses said, if a man dies having no children, his brother, his next of kin, shall marry his wife and raise up children for his brother. 
Now there were seven brothers with us, and the first married and died, and having no children, left his wife to his brother, so also the second and the third, down to the seventh. Last of all, the woman died. In the resurrection, therefore, and you can hear the cackling in the background, ha, 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 in the resurrection, therefore, whose wife of the seven will she be? For they had all married her. But Jesus answered and said to them, you are mistaken, not understanding the scriptures nor the power of God. For in the resurrection, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. But regarding the resurrection of the dead, have you not read what was spoken to you by God? I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. He's not the God of the dead, but of the living. When the crowds heard this, they were astonished at his teaching. This is the word of the Lord. Now, what is the Old Testament background to this controversy, all right, or to the riddle or to the, to the mockery? Well, in Deuteronomy 25, 5 and 6, it says this. When brothers live together and one of them dies and has no son, the wife of the deceased shall not be married outside the family to a strange man. Her husband's brother shall go into her and take her to himself as wife and perform the duty of a husband's brother to her. It shall be that the firstborn whom she bears shall assume the name of his dead brother so that his name will not be blotted out from Israel. Now again, we're so sophisticated and we look back at these ancient times and we think, this is monstrous. But of course the reason it's monstrous to us is that we have been taught that it's inconsequential whether a man's name lives on. As a matter of fact, we've been taught that it's inconsequential whether you're a man or a woman. And so what we see here is that God knew that these people wanted their name to be carried on. And that if they died before they had a son who could carry on their name, that it was important to them that somebody from their family would give them a son, name him after him, and then carry on their name. And so this was a tradition in the world at the time of Christ. This had been obeyed. And so the Sadducees, being highly skeptical of, uh, well, I shouldn't even say skeptical, just not, not believing in the, uh, in the resurrection, came to him with this riddle, this puzzle, this conundrum, where they said, look, somebody died, and, and then his wife married his brother, and then that brother died, and then she married another brother, that brother, and it went through seven, and then... And we all know that there's no resurrection of the body, but let's just assume for a second, for the sake of debate, that there was. And, and she, like, goes to heaven, and there they are! You know, all the hubbies! So whose husband is she going to, or whose wife is she going to be? And of course, Jesus is going to say, huh, I never thought of that. Right? Or, well, you know... Heaven is a spiritual place for spiritual people who are like in touch with the transcendent and the numinous. Or, I mean, there's any, any, any number of questions, answers that Jesus could give, but what Jesus gives should be burned in your brain if you're a Christian. He says, you are, you make a mistake, you've blown it, not knowing scripture or the power of God. Now, think about going up to 
a philosopher who specializes in the Greek philosophy, telling him he doesn't know Socrates. He doesn't know the Republic, right? Doesn't know the poetics, right? And then multiply it times 100. That's how intensely this would have hit the Sadducees for him to say they didn't know Scripture. It would have been an incredible insult to them. You know, it's tantamount to saying, you dummies, don't you know what the Old Testament, the law says? And then he quotes <laughs> probably the text that was better known to them than any other text of the Old Testament, which is what? I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. And then a simple statement. He's not the God of the dead, but of the living. I am. In other words, it depends on the tense of the verb. I am. And that's, that's how he dismisses the question of the resurrection of the dead. He says, haven't you ever heard? You don't know the Bible. I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He's not the God of the dead, but of the living. They're living. And then he says, you don't know the power of God. Now, here's the problem in a post-enlightenment world, in a time when scientists are our gods. The problem is that we believe that the only thing that's real is what we can smell and touch and see and taste. And principally what we can explain. And so if you can't see it, you can't touch it, you can't taste it, you can't explain it. If scientists haven't written a paper on it, it doesn't exist. It used, it used to be the unexamined life was not worth living, and now the unpublished life is not worth living. And so there's all kinds of papers about all kinds of things that we observe in this life, we read the explanation, we understand it, and then it's truth, right? And so, nobody has ever observed today a resurrection. Now, you have people writing books about how people were dead, quote-unquote, and then they saw a bright light, and then they came back to life and wrote a book about it. But they weren't dead because... They wrote a book about what happened then. All right? And all of them die. But Jesus Christ was dead and in the tomb for three days. All right? And he is not here because he is in heaven, seated at the right hand of his father. And so they came to Jesus, and what they were basically saying was, we look at the world, we don't see resurrection, it's incomprehensible how anybody could be raised from the dead, we don't believe in it, and so whose wife is she going to be? And they're sort of like the evolutionist coming to a Christian pastor preacher who thinks he's very sophisticated, and, and, and giving him a chance to acknowledge that actually he won't tell his people this, but he, he really does actually believe in evolution. 
You know, Jesus, we know that ultimately you can't possibly believe in the resurrection of the dead. And Jesus is very direct and very simple. He says, you err not knowing scripture or the power of God. So we know they didn't know scripture because he is the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And therefore, he's the God of everybody. They're not dead. All right? They live. But then he moves over and says, you also don't know the power of God. And here's the thing that we can't get into our minds, which is that the God who made the universe, remember that the Bible says, it is he that hath made us and not we ourselves. The God who made the universe, who made every single one of us in our mother's womb, who knew in our mother's womb every day that we would live and precisely what minute we would die before one of them came to be. This is what scripture says. That God does not have a problem raising us from the dead. He is not impotent. He is not weak. He is not challenged. He is not bothered by raising us from the dead. It's child's play to him. And if we didn't know this, remember the fact that one of the reasons that all of Jerusalem welcomed Jesus in the triumphal entry we celebrate as Palm Sunday is the fact that just a few days earlier, a man who had been in the grave and had been there so long that they said, no, no, he's going to stink. That Jesus said, Lazarus, come out. And he walked out of the grave. And it was right there by Jerusalem. Everybody knew it. This is Jesus, the Son of God. And he raised Lazarus from the dead. He also stilled the storm. When the storm was threatening to drown him and his disciples in the boat, he calmed it. He made the blind to see. He made the lame man jump for joy. He cast out demons and they went into the pigs. You remember that? And the pigs committed suicide. And it was such a horrible scene that the villagers came out to him and said, Leave us alone. We can't take you. Everywhere Jesus went, he showed the power of God. And we have a book that testifies to it. A book without error. And for 2,000 years, wimps and wusses who have inside themselves nothing but the fear of, God, of man, all right, have gotten up and made fools of themselves in Athens. Fools of themselves in Bloomington. And what motivates them to do it? They've seen Jesus. They've felt Jesus. They've been forgiven by Jesus. They have no shame in front of the world. They have no fear of men anymore because now they fear God. And God has said, if any man is in Christ, he's a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. 
And so Jesus says, you err, not knowing Scripture or the power of God. And I'm here to tell you, I know the power of God. I know the forgiveness of God. I know the cleansing work of God in a wicked man. And so I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Why would I be? (laughs) What do you have on me? I yawn. Yep, that too. And so you come to this, to this account of this confrontation between Jesus and the Sadducees, and it's just timeless. It is always the way those who are hardened in unbelief approach the religious, particularly Christians, particularly Christians who believe in the resurrection of the body. They say, no, 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 no. It can't be. I mean, think of the complication factor. I mean, whose wife will she be? And Jesus says, you don't know the power of God. God is is not challenged by the work of raising the dead. You know something? One of the things that's very sad, and I'm going to offend some of you right now, is how many people who claim the name of Christ are cremated today. And you go, whoa, where did that come from? And I say, do you realize the love of those women? You read about it today. You realize the love of those women for Jesus? You, You saw it, right? How did you see it? You saw it because they went out to the grave to anoint the body of the man they loved. Do you know what cremation has always been across history? It's always been a public confession of faith. That there is no resurrection of the dead. That's always been what cremation has been. Always. And if you really hate a man and he's died and you can't get at him while he's living... Always in history, what they've done is they've dug his body up and they've burned it. It's the greatest insult a man can have after he's dead. Now, watch this. So Christians believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And Christians believe that because he lives, we also shall live. And Christians don't believe that means that we believe in the numinous or the the transcendent. Christians believe that our souls will live on in the presence of the Lord and that when he returns, that he will gather up our bodies to again be united with our souls. So Christians have always treated the bodies with reverence. They have ministered to the dead body. They have treated it with respect. They have loved the body because Christians aren't the pagan philosophers who say that when you die, there's nothing. Christians believe that body will be united with the soul. And so Christians love the image of of the person that they loved after he dies, after she dies. Just as they loved the body of Jesus after he died and they went to anoint him. And when Mary saw that the body was gone, she cried. 
And she said, where have they taken my, my beloved? And so we are becoming so philosophical and so sophisticated and so utterly faithless that we aren't even witnessing to the resurrection of the dead when, when we die. We're just completely cold. We're not even lukewarm. You err. You don't know scripture, and you don't know the power of God. Brothers and sisters, and those of you who don't believe, I want to testify to you this morning that he has appointed a day when he will judge all men. And Easter is not a happy day for those who are not in Christ. Easter is a terrible day. Never in a million years would Christopher Hitchens join us in this celebration. Because if what we celebrate today is true, that means that that day is coming when those of you who do not confess your sins under the blood of the Lamb, will be consumed by the wrath of God. That's the significance of Easter. And I know there's no day more than this day when you're pressured to come to church by your loved ones. All right? And it pains me to see you suffer the indignity until I remember that this is a wonderful opportunity for you to hear things that everything in your heart doesn't want to hear. And I want to call you to Jesus, just like Paul did in the Areopagus, just like Jesus did when he said, you don't know the power of God. You're not here to provide for your family and then die. You're not here to have babies and raise them and then take care of the grandchildren. You're here to present to the world the image of God. You are dignified above all the animals and even the redwood trees. <laughs> Glorious though they are, you are dignified with the image of God. There's a very interesting exchange with Christopher Hitchens where he's asked something like uh, what he thinks the numinous and the transcendent are. And he says that he thinks that they're most present in art, but that he always wishes he had been an artist, but that he doesn't have any art in him, but that what he writes does come close to art. And he says, the closest I can come to the transcendent and the numinous, all right, is when I write something, and when I get done writing the sentence, I look at the sentence and I think, I never knew that. That for me is what it means to speak of the numinous, right? The transcendent, the religious, right? Well, listen. Right here, right now, God is present. And the fact that you can't see him means nothing. You can't see electricity. And you're not going to put your finger in the socket. God is here. When you wonder what it is that is the power behind the singing and the musicians of this church, it is not the pursuit of vain glory. 
It is not Ozzy Osbourne. It is the fear and the adoration of God. If you see marriages here that have survived the winters and the summers for many years, it is not because of the unbelievable patience of that woman or the perfection of the man. It is God. He is the one that makes our marriages survive. Listen. Jesus says that there's going to be a resurrection. Jesus himself spoke more of hell than anybody else in Scripture and the judgment. Jesus also says, come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And so here on Easter, I call to you to flee from the wrath to come. And I look at you and I think, oh man, that would be so difficult to admit you were wrong. But this is a company, this is a church, the only thing we have in common is that we are people who have admitted we're capital W wrong. And so... You know, if it, I don't know what I can do to convince you of that except to say to you, I have preached judgment to you. I have spoken of hell to you. And so there shouldn't be any question in your mind that it's not your approval I'm seeking. Okay? If it was your approval I was seeking, I would flatter you. And so what is the objection to coming into the church of Jesus Christ where everyone has a capital W written in scarlet across their chest? In fact, maybe we should all get tattoos. Just a big W. Wrong. Or F, fallen. Or S, sinner. Or W, wicked. And then on the back would be a big R, redeemed. And on the top of our heads would be a big B, blood. The blood of Jesus Christ has cleansed us from all sin. And so there's a wonderful E ahead of us, which is Easter, which is maybe an R, resurrection. And when we're raised from the dead and placed at the judgment seat, we will tremble because we are wicked men and women. And then we will hear something that's unbelievable. We'll hear it, and we won't believe we hear it. You know the old saying that in heaven I expect to find three surprises. Surprise number one, some people not there that I thought would be there. Surprise number two, some people there that I didn't think would be there. And surprise number three, greatest surprise of all, me! (laughs) I'm there! We'll stand in front of the judgment seat. We will know the sin of our lives. And then we will hear 
our master, Jesus, say, he's mine. He belongs to me. He's washed in my blood. And the Father, who is perfectly holy, will be ready to consume us in his wrath. But for the sake of this beloved, only begotten Son, who was obedient to death, even the death on the cross, he will look at his Son and he will say, enter the kingdom. And we'll look back and we'll see the mass of humanity pouring over the precipice into hell where the fire never goes out and the worm never dies. And we will not judge God for condemning the mass of humanity. We will worship the lamb and his blood. And so that's the reason why when we come to Easter... We look at each other, and I say to you, he is risen. And you say, he's risen indeed. He is risen. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. Come to Jesus. Come to him. He will not cast you out. He's a merciful, merciful God. Let's pray. Father, we worship the Lamb of God whose blood was shed for the forgiveness of sin. Father, we worship you for not turning aside from the wickedness of sinful man, but for judging it and condemning it to hell. Father, we confess that we tremble at your wrath. We know our sins. We know the sins of our precious children and our beloved fathers and mothers. Father, will you please take away from us the fear of man that causes us to cringe in front of the Sadducees and philosophers and scholars. And would you replace it with a boldness that is not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. May we, Father, proclaim both hell and heaven, both judgment and mercy until your Holy Spirit works through the word of God, drawing men and women to you. Now, Father, be with us as we celebrate your vindication of your Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Give us joy. Help us reveal to us the power of God. And may our fellowship around the table following as we eat together be sweet, And may you be pleased this day to draw souls to you who are lost in the pit of sin and have never repented. Lead them to repentance and faith, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.